One problem facing people at many levels of business is how to make time for a work life and a personal life. Do you find that one seems to keep getting in the way of the other? This is the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Even if you're not involved in the business world, you'll have a lot to gain by tuning in to today's show. Now, here is your host, Rick Morris. And welcome to another live edition of the Work-Life Balance. You have Rick Morris here for you, cruising you through another Friday afternoon. And today we're going to bring on a gentleman who has a unique combination of both hands-on technical experience and a track record of large-scale business development. His professional career began as a developer, almost like mine, an IT technician, and, and, and moved into development. But shortly afterward, he founded a technology company where he brought several cloud-based products to market after they were acquired he went on to lead business development with several of the top global technology consulting firms in the world, where he was directly responsible for generating over $250 million in revenue. In 2014, his passion for building high-growth technology companies led him back to startups, where he joined Bump as their COO. He spearheaded their eventual pivot to events.com and maintaining responsibility for all product development, sales, marketing, and client services. He's since led the successful turnaround of several other technology companies and has built a reputation as a team builder who can identify market opportunities, design innovative offerings, and then effectively commercialize them to large markets. So let's bring him onto the show. Greg Spillane, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, Rick. Thank you for that. You should uh, you should be my my PR person. That was well, a we'll do it. Yeah, we'll, we'll get out there. I'll be your hype man. That, that's that's, <laughs> that's right. But we've got a lot of similar. So one of my first careers into project management, which is which is what I do, was a project turnaround specialist for Xerox. So I would go yeah. into like the worst of the worst projects, and and I have two weeks to figure out can we turn it around or how big is the check we've got to write uh, to, to get out of it? So, right. That's right. But uh, 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 so those turnarounds, I mean, that's, that's quite a bit. And, and you also now, are you the, the founder and CEO of uh, fancy.com, correct? I, I'm the CEO. Uh, CEO. I'm not the founder. This is uh, another, another turnaround situation. Um, you know, fancy is a company that was founded in 2010. Um, you know, had a, a tremendous amount of success uh, early on, raised a lot of venture capital, actually was valued at, uh, you know, close to a billion dollars. Um, you probably raised over about $120 million of venture capital during that period of time and some really, really high profile individuals involved. I mean, even to this day, uh, still involved. Um, and, you know, the company has done a lot of amazing things, but, uh, you know, as, as happens with a lot of organizations, you know, the, the, the founding team is really good at getting an organization to a certain point. And, uh, then sometimes they can lose traction and, and, and possibly lose a little bit of the direction. And, uh, so there was a, um, a restructuring of the company in late 2018, uh, 2019, I was, I was brought in by the board of directors, um, first as a consultant to, to do a little bit of what you just described at uh, Xerox, you know, come in with some, some ideas and thoughts and, um, you know, ways that we, we could do things better. And uh, I put together a proposal and a plan and the board, you know, basically told me to put my money where my mouth is. So I was, I was uh, made the official CEO of uh, Fancy in July of 2019. Wow, that's fantastic. And you, yeah. and there was a little bit of a turnaround there for you as well, correct? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, 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 was a, it was a pretty big turnaround in a lot of ways. You know, uh, what, what ended up happening here with Fancy, and, and you know, we can probably dive more into this later, is, uh, you know, it, it started as like almost a Pinterest kind of product, right? Where it was more, uh, social network more than anything. And, and, and the core, like, uh, value proposition was a place to to share and discover like the coolest products in the world, 
And it was very urban. It was very chic. It was a place where a lot of uh, high net worth individual, uh, individual celebrities, professional athletes, those types of people would come on. And it was, it was that kind of like hype type of product. And uh, the, the evolution in e-commerce happened, uh, you know, and we talked millions of users later uh, as people would find these products and they were like, dude, these are amazing. We want to buy these. How do we get these? Where do we find these? And uh, you know, as, as any company, any figure out a way to monetize traffic, uh, we moved into um, commerce at that point uh, and, and did that really well. Um, you know, we have a, a mobile app right now that's out in the marketplace. Uh, app Marketplace got about 3 million live installs. Uh, Fancy.com receives almost a million visitors a month. Uh, but what, what the company started to do is started to branch off and go down different roads. Um, opened up a brick and mortar store. So we had like this beautiful retail store in like, you know, Soho, New York. We were paying a tr- ungodly amount of money for rent every month. We started to do promotions. We started to do pop-ups. Uh, we actually went down this road where we started to license out our own proprietary software. So we had this like SaaS business arm. And what ended up ultimately happening is, you know, they kind of took their eye off of the core business, which was fancy as a marketplace, as a destination, and started to go down all these different roads where they quite honestly just didn't execute very well. So they were hemorrhaging money. Um, and, you know, I mean, you, you know, you can only hemorrhage money for so long before, before you know, uh, you got to figure something out. So that, that was really what I was brought in. Um, the business wasn't broken per se. Uh, they just lost their focus and, and were, were inefficient and, and uh, you know, made some changes and got us back on track. So it's almost a founder's curse, right? Because, all right, this is up and running. What can I do next, right? And, and a lot of that's times right. you don't recognize that you are losing that focus or that you can't run that then, or that's not even a business you're good at, but it sounded good on paper. Let's do it. So <laughs> I wonder, it's almost like uh, how many people have died by saying, hey, watch this. It's kind of the same in companies, right? Hey, let's try this. Uh, yeah. You see a lot of capital that, that goes away. Um, but you were a division one athlete as well. Talk, talk to me about that for a second. Yeah, no, I, I, I come out of, uh, I come out of an athletic background, right? I was a little bit of that, uh, sort of that, that dichotomy between growing up as a little bit of a nerd and, you know, a computer guy and really into computers from a really young age. Um, uh, but also kind of the jock in high school, which, which was unique, but, uh, yeah, I attended undergrad on a athletic scholarship. I uh, was a three-year starter at uh, San Diego State football or San Diego State, um, and it was an unbelievable experience for me. I I I I always talk about how, you know, the lessons I learned, you know, having to compete at that level, uh, you know, especially as an undersized guy who was really able to get along with sort of like intelligence and cleverness and hard work versus just pure God-given talent, uh, you know, are traits that you know I've, I I think I've taken with me in the professional world. I I still. Um, you know, the fundamentals that, that, you know, I was taught going through that, that, that experience are, are, are many of the fundamentals that I try to bring into the companies, um, you know, when I do come in to, uh, to, to help lead or, or, or consult with them. So I played volleyball at Tennessee and it was the very same. I'm, I was a six foot one left outside hitter, right? And I'm going yeah. up six, 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 seven guys. So it was always about hitting where they weren't versus, you know, just being That's able right. to hit the ball straight down the, the same thing. But, you know, it's interesting with you being a CEO with that background. One, um, and, and I've read some research around this, uh, but were you ever really close to like a, a, a championship game and lost or like on a better team that shouldn't have lost a game and did lose a game? Did you ever have that experience as an athlete? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I've been on teams throughout the season that had tons of talent 
and we just completely underachieved. And then I've been on teams that weren't expected to do much and were, were scrappy, but because we were able to, you know, come together and sort of had a common belief and people liked each other and knew how to work with each other and sort of had that culture within the group, we overachieved and, 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 and did, you know, great. I mean, my, we won a, a WAC championship my junior year in college. We were the first San Jose State football team to go to a bowl game. And, and you know, at the time, it was 20 years. And, you know, that was a team that, you know, I think on paper, nobody expected us to do much, but it was just a phenomenal group of guys that loved each other and believed in the, the common goal and the, the, the mission the coach said. And, you know, we worked our tails off and we did some spectacular things. So coming back to that, that being close to a championship and losing or something of that sort, the, there's a large majority of executives out there um, who experienced that. And that turned into a work ethic then to never feel that way again. Right. So, so the yeah. disappointment of losing and, and I was, you know, we were, we were number one in state should have won a state championship and, and we, we didn't. And, and that drive is what drove me to, to continue to work out and to get better for mm-hmm. Tennessee. But um, do you, do you think that that's true? Do you think that that research is, is relatively true? Just that, that feeling of disappointment turns into that work ethic to say, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can to never feel that way again. Yeah, Rick, I, I, I do. Um, and I, and I think it's more than just athletics. I think athletics is actually, is obviously one component of it, but, um, you know, I, I talk a lot about this with, with my team, like this concept of, uh, hiring people that have a chip on their shoulder, you know, Mm -hmm. people who have something to prove or have had some kind of disappointment and, and internal to themselves are like, you know what, I'm, I'm not going down. Like I refuse to like not do the things that I want to do in life, but for whatever reason, maybe, maybe life in general hasn't come easy to them. And, you know, maybe they come from a background that isn't sort of that silver spoon background, or, you know, maybe they come out of the best college and, you know, now they got to feel like they got to prove themselves to the rest of the world. Uh, But it's ultimately that drive, whether it's, you know, failing in an athletic event and being like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to never let this happen to me again. I'm going to work harder than everybody else. So it doesn't happen. Or it's just, you know, that feeling in life of like, you know what, I refuse not to be special. I, I refuse not to be great. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a drive that or a fire that builds inside of that person. And I think that that would lead a lot of people to be very successful in life and in their careers. Completely agree with that. So what we're going to do is take a break right here. When we come back, we're going to be with Greg Spillane. He's the CEO of, of Fancy. We're going to talk about how athletics did transfer into the business world, and then we'll start getting into how you approach some of these turnarounds and some of the key lessons learned from there. So we'll be right back after break. You're listening to Rick Morris on the Work-Life Balance. Are you aware that 80% of project management executives do not know how their projects align with their company's business strategy? Are you aware that businesses identified capturing time and costs against projects as their biggest project management challenge? Are you aware that 44% of project managers use no software, even though PricewaterhouseCoopers found that the use of commercially available project management software increases performance and satisfaction? Now, imagine that you could have the ease of entry like a spreadsheet and a software tool set up and running within two to four weeks. Imagine within two weeks being able to see clearly where all of your resource conflicts are. Well, you don't have to imagine because PDWare has already created it. PDWare can give you real-time access to KPIs, easily updated views of what your teams are working on, and immediately 
immediate feedback to some of project management's toughest questions, like, when can we start this project? What happens if we delay this project? Can we do this in time? How does this new project impact our current portfolio? Find us at pdware.com and imagine not manually compiling endless reports again. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back to the Work-Life Balance on this Friday afternoon. We are visiting with Greg Spillane. He's the CEO of Fancy.com, but also... Uh, someone who has uh, just done a tremendous amount of turnarounds. And and so before we get into the turnaround stories or what we've learned in the turnarounds, you said that you you leverage a lot of your athletic background kind of with your teams and with your people. What what specifically? Give us give us a little taste of, of what that means. Yeah, you know, I, I just think that there were there were lessons that I learned in regards to what it takes to be successful that I, I really try to instill and, 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 and get with my team. And, and you, you know, you, you as an athlete, you'll, you'll probably appreciate some of these. Like, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, we talk a lot about is just being coachable, right? People willing oh, yeah. to take basic feedback. Uh, I think a lot of people can be very defensive of that and, and don't like that. And, you know, for people who don't know, you know, a typical football game in the NFL, or college, you know, you, you play the game and the very next day, the very first thing you do is you get in a room and you, you watch the game with your coaches and they go play by play by play by play. And it's like, you're Tom Brady, you're the you know, greatest quarterback of all time. Every single play, Bill Belichick or whoever the quarterback coach is, is telling him something that he did wrong or something he could have done better. Right. And that's, that's just the way that works. And, and I think as a football player, you, you get very used to coaching or being an athlete, you get very used to coaching. And then, so, you know, I think that's something that's really helpful. It's like, even as a CEO of a company, you know, I, I got to always be open to take criticism or, you know, whether it's my employees or board or investors or, or, or you know, people like yourself. And you know, I think that's really important, but, th- but it goes on and on, you know, everything from just being on time, you know, the importance of being on time, right? Like Real show up, thing. be on time, yeah. um, work ethic, right? Like uh, athletics at any, you know, at that level, it's the ultimate meritocracy. Right. Like, you know, when you were playing volleyball, you know, at, at Tennessee, you know, you weren't going to get on the court because, you know, you knew somebody or you were there the longest or you're the senior. It's like they're going to play the best guy. And if there's a guy that's working harder than you or, or doing things better than you or or, you know, whatever it is, he's the guy that's going to be on the court. And I think that all that ultimately translates to the business world. I loved what you said earlier, too, about hiring people kind of with a chip on their shoulder. And, and, I, and I kind of apply that to my personal life. So being an athlete. You know, obviously injuries came into play. I got lazy. I, I, you know, gained a tremendous amount of weight and exercise has always been something that, that 
you know, I haven't really made a priority and I finally found that formula, but it was back Mm -hmm. to competition. Like for me, so I go to orange theory fitness now and there's an 80 year old lady on the row or next to me, just killing it. You know what I mean? And I'm like dying over there, but I won't quit because I don't want to be the person that gives up and I need that level of accountability. And and so it's been the same for me in business and I, I need, I need a competitor. I need something to go after. I can't just, you know, dominate a, a, a certain sector because I'm not happy. I've got to see the 80 year old lady rowing next to me to get that drive right. To, right, right, to keep coming in. Yeah. So you, you said you did a lot of uh, uh, turnarounds. Tell me a couple of your favorite turnaround stories or even kind of the themes that started to evolve. Yeah. You know, I, I really, I, I got involved uh, in turnarounds and I guess around 2014 and, and, and it was completely unexpected. I had, uh, I had, after I had gotten out of my company, I'd sold my company. I went on and worked in the enterprise space, but you know, during that period I, I went and got an MBA from the university of Southern California. And, uh, you know, I met uh, some amazing people in there. And, and one of the people I met, uh, ended up uh, becoming the CEO of this company was called bump at the time. Uh, and, you know, I had, was in the corporate world. I was working, you know, probably similar to a lot of what you're doing, these big, you know, systems integration projects, you know, IT technology, uh, um, you know, coming in there, doing the consulting, the business development, then all of a sudden, you know, uh, ultimately the program management after it. And, and, you know, like the Walmarts of the world, the Sonys and the HPs, and those guys. And, and it was great. It was cool, um, comfy, good paycheck. But, you know, I just felt like a cog in a gigantic wheel. So I, I knew I wanted to get back into kind of the startup world and a business school colleague of mine uh, reached out to me. He was looking for a technology person with a little bit of a BD kind of marketing product background. And uh, I left the, the big corporate world to join this company. And it was I, it, the founder. Uh, it wasn't a founder CEO. The founder was this guy. He had had a tremendous amount of success. He started a company that, that eventually went public for a billion dollars um, visionary, super dynamic guy, not an operator at all. And he pulled these companies together and it was almost like an incubator of some sorts or like five different acquisitions and they came together and I was brought in to build the go-to-market strategy. And I was like, Greg, you know, the CEO of Tom, like there is zero synergies between any of these companies. This makes no sense. Like what, what are you even trying to do here? What's the goal? What's the vision? And, and a lot of the stuff just quite frankly didn't exist. So, you know, we went through that process at that point and, and really looked at the assets that we had in play. And, and, you know, there was a business division that we ended up shutting down. There was a business division that we ended up spinning off, tripling revenues, and it was acquired within two years. Uh, and then we had this domain name, which was the events.com, and we, there was an opportunity in the market. So we, you know, we really led the company through a pivot. Um, we rebranded as events.com and built that platform from the ground up, raised a bunch of money and, and built this, you know, company that's still doing really well today, even in spite of the, the current situation. Um, so that was really kind of my first experience from a turnaround situ- uh, perspective. And then what ended up happening is the CEO of the time decided to get back into the finance world and he became a VC himself and he started to invest in companies. And then at that point I became kind of his go-to guy he would is, invest yeah. in a distressed company. And it was like, Hey, Greg, these guys got something great here. We just invested it. I'm coming here and tell me what you can do. And, and, you know, that's ultimately, uh, it's been kind of a, a stepping stone process until uh, Fancy. And ultimately, that's how I was introduced to the team here at Fancy and eventually asked to, to run the company. Yeah, my, my ultimate dream, my ultimate vision and goal of where I go is, is 
you know, being paved by Marcus Limonis. I love yeah. what he does. I love how he does it. I love you mm-hmm. can you can see right if you're if you're a portfolio guy, program guy, you see it. But when, right. when, as soon as he acquires a company, I already know the ele- the other eleven companies he's going to leverage with it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. it's brilliant strategy. But he's saving small business along the way. Um, so when you started to do the these turnarounds, when we start talking about themes, in fact, I'll just I'll set you up with a softball question. We'll see. We'll see how far you hit it out of the park. But in all those areas, what is the number one asset of any company, period? Yeah, you know, uh, we we were talking about this and our similarities and our belief on this, but it's 100% people. Um, It's it's not even close. And, you know, just, you know, quite honestly, um, it's not something that I intuitively knew when I first started this process. You know, coming out of business school, um, you know, and the way business school works is it's, it's kind of based on this like case case study mentality where they will lay out a, a, a situation or an analysis of a, of a business. And then they want you to basically tell you what the business should do. You know, where should they grow? Where should they invest? Where should they invest? What's the strategy? Why would this work, et cetera? And, um, you know, quite frankly, even at, at, at Bump, I, I took a little bit of a business case mentality. You know, it was easy to come in here and see these five different companies and understand that some of these didn't make sense and there isn't a strategic rationale and, you know, we should divest this and we should cut costs here. Um, but you don't always realize that, you know, number one, that there's real people behind this and these decisions that look great on a spreadsheet or, you know, whatever it is. I, I know that's, that's really me kind of plagiarizing your quote. Um, in practice, uh, can have a disastrous impact on the morale of your team. And it doesn't matter how good your idea is or how good your strategy is. If your people don't believe in you and they don't trust you and they don't feel like they're aligned with the mission of the company and that the company is really looking out for their best interest, you know, you're going to lose them. And, um, you know, it's not just that you're going to lose them because you're going to find another job. You're just, you're, you're, they're not going to trust you and they're not going to want to follow you. And uh, that's something that over time, I've, I believe I've gotten a lot better on as I've made that realization. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 I have some scars from that. I made some mistakes and I, I did lose some people and I had some issues with some really great employees who, you know, didn't necessarily trust me like they, they needed to. And, 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 and rightfully so. And, and, and since then, I think I've really evolved. Yeah, but that still keeps you up at night at times, though, to be fair, right? You'll still think back to that. It, it does me. You know, I, I, I stumbled across that again, much like you by accident. Uh, but it was during the Xerox turnaround times. Again, I only had two mm-hmm. weeks, so I couldn't really bond with the team. I couldn't really find out, you know, what was going on. Uh, and I, re- I started to really invest profiles and understanding disk profiles and that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. so I would walk in to, to do a turnaround. I'd disk profile the whole team and I'd grab my C's and I'd take them and, and we'd go talk. And mm-hmm. literally, I, I could probably say out of, you know, 25 to 30 projects I was looking at a year, um, easily 30 of them, I had the answer in day one by talking yeah. to the right people. And that's what started to fascinate me. I was like, how is this possible? How do they have the answer? But the executives mm-hmm. are, are flying me in to, to solve this. And, and I, that was all breakdown. And it was all so true. And it, it, even your high C, and for those that you don't know, your high C, your, your conscientious people, their facts, their figures, they, they're sometimes mm-hmm. really quiet, but they're the easiest ones to shut down. So if you tell them, you know, that's a dumb idea or, or you, they'll just stop offering. And that's, that's what right. was happening. And it, it was a tremendous learning ground. I wish every CEO and executive could experience some of those turnaround type um, opportunities uh, so that they get that because I, I feel like we're still lacking. 
Um, and in fact, I'll ask you a question too. One of my favorite questions to ask is, do you pick your projects based on what you can spend, meaning in your capital project round, or do you pick your projects based on what your resources can realistically achieve? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the latter. Uh, for me, um, I, yeah. you know, that's, we had a conversation about that today with my team, um, you know, and we're actively transforming fancy and we're constantly working on things. And, uh, you know, I used to have this quote that was behind my desk and it, it said, there's always, uh, there's always more great ideas than there is capacity to execute. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, that's, that's a really key thought is like, we all have great ideas and this would be, this would be awesome. This could be great. And we should do this and we should transform this. We should go after this market, whatever it is. But like, you got to really be honest with yourself and you got to ask yourself, like, can you execute on this? Do you have the bandwidth to execute on this? And, and if you start to try to execute on it, well, you know, what, what happens to the other stuff that people are working on? Is it a distraction? You know, and uh, you know, it's hard. I, and, and, you know, going back to, you know, your point of that, that, that kind of curse of the founder, I think a lot of founders have that issue, right? Um, innately they're these like dreamers and these these op these uh, opportunistic people who kind of like see opportunities and then they go after them uh but we used to always call it the shiny object syndrome right sure. it's so easy Absolutely. to see the shiny object and get distracted and then all of a sudden you lose you know you lose course of what you're trying to accomplish yeah, squirrel all right so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh we're going to take another break right here we'll be right back with greg spillane you're listening to rick morris on the work-life balance Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end -end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. At the Work-Life Balance, we like to ask simple questions to our executives and portfolio managers. Are you picking your projects based on what the organization can spend, or is it based on what your resources can realistically achieve? This question, if not answered properly, can cause great strain on your staff, limiting the return on investment. When creating project selection criteria, does your organization attempt to understand the amount of resources needed to complete the work? Is this done in spreadsheets or at a high level? What if we told you there was a simple and easy solution that was built with resource planning in mind? We call it Resource First from PDWare. Resource First was built with resource planning as its foundation. We have years of experience that proves before a company fine-tunes its project and portfolio management processes. Without a process for resource planning, the best processes and algorithms can fall flat. Resources should be first when deciding the strategy of taking an organization forward. Find out more at PDWare. PDWare.com. Put your people first with Resource First from PDWare. Join us at PDWare.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now back to the work-life balance. 
And we're back to the work-life balance on this Friday afternoon, visiting with Greg Spillane, who is the CEO of Fancy.com and, and turnaround extraordinaire specialist. Uh, uh, lots to talk about. Like we're, we're even filling up the, the break time. There's, there's no awkward silence here. Yeah, Greg. I'm, I'm, I'm digging it, bro. So um, what would you say that, that you, uh, you know, I'm big into leadership as well. In fact, yeah. one of the big things I wanted to do is I, I realized I was a very, um, a uh, descriptive leader, a prescriptive mm-hmm. leader in the sense that I was, I was not empowering my team because I was giving them the answers. And, and I mm-hmm. started to seek a better way and found my way on to, uh, uh, to the John Maxwell team and part of his president's advisory council now. Uh, yeah. But what would you say that you've learned over time that has made you a, a better leader? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, really, that's a really good question. Um, you know, Having you know my unique situation and and coming in in a lot of cases having to make change and elicit change, uh, you know I think one of the things that's made me a better leader is kind of the improvement of my EQ in general and specifically uh, respecting the work people have put in already and the efforts that people have made. I, I think the easiest thing in the entire world to do is criticize. It is so easy to be a critic. And when you come in from the outside of a company and, you know, a company's been having issues, like you have to like avoid your internal habit of going, why are you doing this? Or whose idea was this? Or this doesn't make any sense. Or like, how did nobody see this? Or how did nobody stop this? Right? Like, and uh, there's probably a reason and a rationale for why every one of these decisions was made. And you weren't in that situation. You, you didn't have the external uh, pressures or, or, you know, whatever was going on in the world at the time when that decision was made. So to come in after the fact and criticize things, criticize people's work, you just shut people down, in my opinion. So, you know, I think as I've become a better leader, uh, you know, A, it's really just, uh, and I, and I'm, I know we're being repetitive here, but it really is about the people. Um, is a it's like that appreciation for the work and the effort that people have made first of all but then oh go ahead no i was just going to say i didn't want to glance over that because uh, you know yeah. as many leaders as well as many projects as i've been a part of companies i've been a part of and leaders that i've worked with i've never heard anybody put that so eloquently in the sense of when you come in regardless there was a lot of blood sweat and tears to whatever however the state is there so really respecting the work that has been done, that's, you need to run with that statement. I've never heard anybody say it that way. And that, yeah. that, 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 that could turn into your, your primary keynote speech. I'm telling you that, that was, that was awesome. That that's worth, the, that's worth a listen to, to me, but, uh, and I'll let the, I'll yeah. let the listeners uh, tweet me or hit me up on what they think about that. But that was, that was beautifully said. I just didn't want to glance over that, but go ahead. Yeah, no, look, I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, as we were talking about offline, um, you know, I guess I, you know, experience has a lot to do uh, with things and, you know, like I have a lot of scars from that, you know, and, you know, I've, I've, I've been able to will myself and we've been able to have a lot of success, but, uh, you know, I, I think I've broken a lot of glass along the way, you know, and I, that was something I was definitely doing earlier in my career was, you know, breaking a little glass, breaking too much glass at times. So, you know, I think as I've, I've matured and I've gotten, I've become a better leader, it, it, it really is, you know, those types of things of just having more EQ, having more respect for your people, you know, those types of things. And then, you know, this, this one sounds simple, but it's, it's the absolute truth. I mean, that, that, that stuff's all great when you kind of come in, but eventually you got to move forward. 
And the key to moving forward, and, and, and you know, I think the number one thing with any leadership is you got to be clear on direction, right? Like, I mean, everybody needs to know where they're going. Um, there can't be a bunch of ambiguity. You got to get, you know, sort of all your horses pulling in the right direction. So, you know, it's got to be simple. Uh, you got to kind of have a North Star. You got to have a strategy. You got to have core values. And you really are, you know, doing everything you can to make sure that uh, everybody is clear on what they need to be doing on a daily basis, what the goals of the company are, who we want to be. And, uh, and then, you know, manage it. Make sure that the people that are in place, you know, underneath you that have their own teams that are, are, are aligned with you and, and it goes all the way down to the organization. Did you have a, a trait or, uh, yeah, we'll say a trait, personality trait or something that you really had to overcome that was leading to those kind of career limiting moves, right? Going back into the day where yeah. some of those scars, what, what were some of those traits that you felt like you had to overcome? God, it's a great question. Uh, I, I don't know if I've ever really thought this through, but as you say that, what popped into my mind is that athletic background, right? I'm, I'm, I, you know, growing up in athletics, I was used to the coach coming up to me and grabbing me by the face mask, you know, so to speak, and shaking me and yelling at me and telling me to pull my head out of my, you know, what, and, you know, if, if I don't want to get my, you know, ass kicked on a daily basis, you better pick it up because, you know, this, and it was like that just direct, like, you know, blunt, hey, like, like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried about your feelings. I'm going to tell you what you need to do to win. Right. And that worked well for me. And I think it works for football players, but it doesn't always work for oh, an engineer. No. Yeah. <laughs> and when you said that, I just had in my head, uh, Lou Holtz, but I, I used to love watching, what is he? 90 pounds yeah. soaking wet, grab one of those 375 pound guys and just eat them up. Get it, get it, yeah. get it. So mine was, mine was temper. And the other thing was, is I was generally, and again, it's not a bright, you, you should feel this way too, but generally when we walk in a room, we're, we're some of the smartest people in the room, just in the sense of experience and we've seen things and that yeah. kind of stuff, but that, that invaded my ego. And I then started to assume at all times that I was the smartest person in the room. And that led to a lot of my career limiting moves and something I really, I overcame through servant leadership, through yeah. um, just finding ways to serve other people, regardless of, of what the task was. Uh, but that's how that that was like the key trait. If I were to go back and look at my career stops, and and what stopped me from going to the next thing, it it, it was ego from assuming that I was the smartest person in the room. So how did you? Uh... When did that realization happen? Was there an event or was it just sort of evolution over time? No, there, there, was, there was a key event and it was, um, I, I had accelerated very, very quickly in Xerox and uh, because of the turnaround, again, if you, uh, what's great about a turnaround, if we, if we look at it is if we turn it around, we're a hero, but if we couldn't turn it around, it was too far gone before we got there, right? So, I mean, it's come sure. on. But, uh, and so, uh, you know, I was getting a lot of hype and I was given a project way out of my depth and yeah. I wasn't validating anything. And, and I, I do a whole thing on the definition of done because of this project. But I was told that they were done. I cleared the executive's calendars. I flew them in. We were ahead of schedule. You know, I'm thinking I'm a rock star. And uh, I go to my developer and I was like, hey, you, you need to uh, uh, go show them a demo. And, and he goes, show them what? I was like, well, you know, you said you were done. He goes, yeah, Rick, the code compiled, but I don't have any UI or I, there's nothing to show. Sure. And so now I got a room full of executives I'm about yeah. to walk into. And of course, now that I've cleared their calendars, I get all the questions like, didn't you validate? Did you look at it? Did you do any kind of, and the answer is, it was just no, no, no. And yeah. that was the most brutal day in my life. And, and that's, I can pinpoint that's where I started to change. 
it was a long, you know, it takes time, but that, that was the feeling I never wanted to feel again. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, man. I've, uh, I, I know that, that feeling and, uh, nothing worse than when you're, when you are in a room with a lot of really smart executives that know how to ask the right questions, how they can just poke so many holes into everything and make you feel so small. <laughs> it's your own firing line is exactly yeah. what it is that could get lead, you know, lead to, to, to getting fired. How do you find, um, how do you find great talent? How do you recruit great talent out there in these, these organizations and in this day and age? Yeah. I, talent's tough, man. Um, you know, I, I kind of have a certain type of person that I, that I look to hire. Uh, and you know, for me, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of like what we mentioned about. It's like that person who's got a little bit of a chip. I like to see someone who, you know, in their career has done things where you're like, okay, this guy's ambitious, right? Like, you know, someone who goes off on their own and starts a company, even if it's a failed entrepreneur, uh, like I don't, fault somebody for that. Right. Sure. I mean, yeah, obviously within reason, right? Like there's a certain drive that it takes to go out on your own and start something or, you know, that type of thing. So I, I like someone who, uh, that is excited because, you know, typically I'm in these, you know, these startup companies, smaller organizations that have these big aspirations. Like I want someone that, that wants to be here and is willing to run through a wall to make this company successful. And, and I tell everybody in the interview process, you know, I mean, kind of my typical interview processes, uh, you know, we'll go through the process, we'll have our talks. And before we put an offer out, I'll have a final interview. And the final interview is usually when we've already made a decision that we want to move forward with you, but I'm going to talk you out of the job. That's my job. I want to make sure that you come in here wanting to be here. And, uh, and, and that's one of the very first things I, you know, really go through with it is like, listen, if you're looking for a, you know, a, a cushy nine to five lifestyle job where you get a steady paycheck and people tell you exactly what you need to do and you can leave work and never think about it. Like, don't come work here. There's a ton of big companies. Yeah. They love people like that. You can get sure. a job like that all day long. But like, if you want to come in here because you don't want to be a cog in a big wheel and you want to feel like you can build something and you want to build a culture and you want to like be able to call up the CEO and have a conversation and change doesn't have major bureaucracy and, you know, all those types of things. Um, but understand that there's going to be tough times and, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be chaotic at times, et cetera, et cetera. Then this is the right role. And, and it's the people that get jazzed up and want to be part of that, you can just see him frothing at the mouth. Like, oh my God, I'm so excited. I can't wait to get in here and like be part of this company and this team and build it. Like those are the type of people I want to hire. Yeah, so Napoleon Hill, one of my favorite books of all time, Think and Grow Rich, yeah. talks about that as burning desire. And it's where you're willing yeah. to cut all ties and bridges and exit points to where the only path forward is forward, right? There's right. just no, you cannot retreat. And that's the burning desire that it takes to truly that's right. Right, think and grow rich. So I, I, I love that piece. So we're, we're going to uh, go ahead and take our final break right here and come back, spend a little time. Uh, when we come back though, I want to talk a little bit about the crowdfunding that you've done. And then we're going to get you sure. the question that uh, I ask everybody, which is what's some of the best advice you've ever received. So we'll do that right after the break. You're listening to the work-life balance with Rick Morris. Are you aware that 80% of project management executives do not know how their projects align with their company's business strategy? Are you aware that businesses identified capturing time and costs against projects as their biggest project management challenge? Are you aware that 44% of project managers use no software, even though PricewaterhouseCoopers found that the use of commercially available project management software increases performance and satisfaction? Now, imagine that you could have the ease of entry like a spreadsheet 
and a software tool set up and running within two to four weeks. Imagine within two weeks being able to see clearly where all of your resource conflicts are. Well, you don't have to imagine because PDWare has already created it. PDWare can give you real-time access to KPIs, easily updated views of what your teams are working on, and immediate feedback to some of project management's toughest questions, like, when can we start this project? What happens if we delay this project? Can we do this in time? How does this new project impact our current portfolio? Find us at pdware.com and imagine not manually compiling endless reports again. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. Balance on this Friday afternoon. Final segment here with Greg Spillane, who's the CEO of Fancy.com. And, you know, one thing... uh, you know, you guys, I know that you guys raised a ton of money early on, as you were saying, there was a lot of investors, a lot of hype, a lot of celebrities, um, yeah. but now you're going to crowdfunding. And so what's yeah. that's, that, that's generally like, Hey, the, the common person can jump in on a crowdfunding. So why, sure. why did you decide to do that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a fair question. Um, you know, when, when I came in, it was after, uh, uh yeah, you know, a recapitalization of the company at a significantly lower valuation, right? This company that was, uh, they, they, they raised money at, I think at a $600 million valuation at its peak. If it was like an American Express uh, actually led their round, a $30 million round. And, um, you know, like I said, they, they were hemorrhaging money and they had insolvency moments and, and you know, uh, the company never went bankrupt, but there was a recap at, at I mean, a valuation that's almost laughable, really. And, uh you know, they put in a little bit of money in the board of directors and, and there's, you know, still two billionaires on our board and our cap table and the co-owners of the Boston Celtics and um, Francois Pinot, who owns the Kering Group, is, I think his net worth is close to $40 billion, right? So th- there was not a money issue, it wasn't a capital issue. And, um, you know, we've, we've been working to get as close towards profitability as we could, uh, but, you know, we needed to raise a little bit of money. Um, so we, we opened up a $2.5 million round, uh, $12 million valuation. Uh, which is very attractive considering sure. where, where we are at with the revenue and the domain name and the technology platform and just the data that we sit on in general. Um, and what happened is I had no idea what this type of crowdfunding was. I thought of crowdfunding was like uh, Kickstarter, right? Like, right. hey, yeah. you know, give me a hundred bucks and we're going to build these, uh, these phone cases. And once we build them, we'll, we'll send you a phone case, Right. But this is, this is different. Uh, SEC uh, a couple of years ago changed some rules 
and they they now allow for unaccredited investors to invest in privately owned companies, which didn't used to be the case, right? You couldn't uh, invest in a pre-IPO company as just a normal person if you weren't accredited. Um, so there's you know a couple platforms out there, WeFunder being one of them, and the chairman of our board, who as I mentioned is a billionaire owner of the Celtics, is a large investor in the company. And he came to me and he's like, hey, listen, Greg, like, we'll, you know, we want to support this company. So ultimately, uh, you know, committed, um, you know, close to a million and a half of the two and a, two and a half million, but you can raise up to a million dollars through crowdfunding. And what it got me thinking of is it's great to have a great, uh, a loyal customer because you gave them an amazing experience. But if we can give an opportunity to all those loyal customers to own part of our company, they're going to be beyond loyal, right? Now you start to create this, this army of, uh, of evangelists and advocates and people that are going to you know, talk about you and share about with your friends. And not just because we have a cool product or you find some interesting stuff or they like the user experience, but you know, they actually feel part of this company. So that was the decision behind it. Um, so we did launch this uh, crowdsource funding campaign. It's, it's equity funding on these people buying stock shares into our company at the valuation I mentioned. And, you know, the goal of this thing is to, you know, to grow at 10 X and, and have a nice, you know, um, uh, sale or a liquidity moment, uh, event of some sort where we provide these people with a huge return on their investment. Um, so that's, that, that that's why is we it, did it. And that's where we're at. Is it still active on WeFunder? It is. It is. We just recently launched uh-huh. it. Uh, you know, anybody that's interested can go to wefunder.com forward slash fancy and, there's uh, everything you want to know about our company is there and, and uh, you'll learn a little bit about the opportunity and uh, our lowest investments are 250 bucks. Um, and, you know, you get, you get some perks with that, you know, lifetime discount codes and, you know, it kind of goes from there. I'm a huge fan of WeFunder. Just yeah. you can see some of the up and comers, but probably, I don't know, have invested into 15, 16 different companies through that. That's great. So uh, you just probably got another investor that way. So we'll uh, check that I, out I right it. after the show. Yeah, I, I t- I'll tell you what, I, I was not, um, you know, I, I, I've raised all this money, you know, through these through these different companies and it always been a traditional route of going to accredited investors, family offices, high net worth, venture capital. And and I just never even realized that there is this, this um this sort of refunder crowdfunding world. And it, it's so cool. There's so many yeah. amazing companies. It's, it, it can be kind of addicting. It, it's really addicting. It's a, it's yeah. a bad, that's, that's why I didn't know fancy was out there. Cause I had to cut myself off about a month ago and <laughs> just, yeah. you know, uh, I got to give myself a little bit of a break. Um, so what's some of the best advice you've ever received? Oh man. I, you know, there's just been so much advice. I mean, I could, I could be crass and, go back to some of my early college days where I had coaches that just told me to basically not be an a-hole and like do things right and be right. Uh, but uh, I think most recently the best advice I've received was from um, uh, a mentor of mine, someone who's had an amazing career, has known me for a really long time. And he knew I was the kind of guy, you know, I came up as an operator. And even, you know, when I got back in the startup world, I was a, I was a CRO and you read it earlier. I managed the sales team and the marketing team and the product development team and engineering. And, and, uh, and, and I love to get in the weeds. I just loved yeah. it. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Right. And, uh, you know, as I, as I started to move higher up the chain in executive management, um, the advice I got is you got to let go. You got to get out of people's way. You know, your job is as a CEO is not to be in every product development meeting and not to be in every marketing meeting 
and not to drive every single decision on your own. Like you got to trust your people, you know, set the vision of the company, let people know what they need to do, let them know how we're going to measure things and what, you know, ultimately what, what their, um, you know, the, uh, the, the key results that, that are being tracked are, but get out go out, do these types of things, talk to people like yourself, like be an evangelist at the company, manage investor relations, you know, handle large scale BD things. But, you know, as much as you love to get in the weeds, you got to step away and let your people do it. And so, yeah, (laughs) but it's hard. It's hard because that's how we got there, right? That's how we got successful. That's how we got to the places that we get. Mm -hmm. But um, so you, you still dabble. You oh, can't, yeah. you can't fool me. You still dabble. Yeah. You, you still pop into a meeting here and there and, and like That's to get right. in, you roll the sleeves up. Okay. All right. I was just making sure <laughs> it's yeah. not just me. So what about uh, some final thoughts uh, for the audience out there? Just as we wrap up uh, this incredible interview with you, just uh, what would, what would you like to leave the audience with? Yeah, look, I know you got a really eclectic audience base and, and, and you know, obviously people who are, are out there and are listening are, you know, are interested in these types of things or interested in bettering themselves and interested in growing. I know you are. Uh, I, I think that that's probably a trait I have. Um, I, I, honestly, as cliche as it sounds, is like, just just show up and do it, man. Um, you know, it's, it, you know, I, I always say like, uh, you know, it's like the old proverb, right? How do you eat an elephant? And, mm-hmm. and the answer is one bite at a time. And if you sit back and you try to, you know, have this goal or this aspiration or this dream for yourself, and you just think about like, oh my God, how am I going to get there? You can get overwhelmed and you get into this paralysis by analysis where you don't even, you don't end up doing anything. And, you know, my advice is, is just start, just start anywhere. Just, just do it. Do a Google search. You want to start a company thinking about being an entrepreneur? Just start reading. Go, go on Google, just do a search and, and things will spiral and things will happen. And, th- and, and, uh, but you know, if you just sit around and you dream it, it'll never happen. Uh, totally agree. Totally agree. We, we say, uh, uh, jump and catch your wings on the, on the fall. Right? Yeah, so I love that. yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll build the wings on the way down. That's, that's how yeah. it's going to go, but we're going to go ahead and jump and, and see what's happening. And, I've been, I've been probably, I don't know if that's the best advice because it's, it's gone back and forth uh, for me. But uh, every time I get an opportunity, we're going to jump and we're going to get at it. Listen, Greg, we certainly appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us and, and being vulnerable with the, the audience and looking forward to see what happens at fancy.com as well as whatever else happens in your career, whatever's next. Yeah, Rick, I really enjoyed it. Uh, amazing conversation. It was really fun. And uh, yeah, thanks. I appreciate you. So next week we're going to have next week, you know, I'm, 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 I'm skeptical and I'm pumped at the same time. So we've got Doug Vermarine coming on. Uh, but I even reference it here. One of the, the greatest books that, that I've ever read, one of the greatest impacts in my life was Think and Grow Rich. I, I use it on stage. I've got my mantra taped to my monitor right here of what my next step is. Um, and this gentleman is calling himself the modern day Napoleon Hill. So I'm dying to dig in <laughs> to find out uh, what this conversation is going to be about. And in me being a, a, a true disciple of Napoleon Hill's work, uh, I'm, I'm excited to hear where he's taking this. So that's what we're going to be doing next Friday. That's going to be August 7th. And of course, we're always here at 2 p.m. Pacific. 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Work-Life Balance. Please stay tuned to the Voice America Business Network as they have another fantastic program for you right after this. And we will talk to you all next Friday. 
Thank you for joining us this week. The Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now that the weekend is here, it's time to rethink your priorities and enjoy it. We'll see you on our next show. 